we don't appreciate the role that our unconscious plays in our lives, um, that, that, that we think we're in charge above the neck in between the ears. Um, if I want to think about an elephant, I can think about an elephant. If I want to plan what I'm going to do tomorrow, we think that we can decide what we're going to think in our head and nothing is further from the truth. The vast majority of what goes on inside our heads is outside of our control. Uh, it's the most important things that take place in our heads and we totally don't appreciate it and we can dramatically improve the quality of our lives if we gain a better understanding and a better relationship of these unconscious processes. Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights. I'd love to welcome you, uh, Dr. Daniel Lieberman, to Homegrown Humans. Um, Daniel is a professor of psychiatry at George Mason University. He is the author of The Molecule of More, which is a fascinating book all about dopamine, as well as his most recent Spellbound, which is a treatise on the role of our unconscious. So Daniel, welcome to Homegrown Humans. Uh, I, I reckon we've got plenty to talk about today. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah. So, so first of all, um, as many folks that listen to this program and are either kind of members of our Flow Genome Project community or the Neurohacker Collective, which are our partners uh, on this production. Um, many folks are familiar with neurochemistry. Folks are familiar with the roles of serotonin, oxytocin, and of course the you know ever fun to talk about dopamine. Um, and you sort of have you know you've you've come into a field where there's quite a number of folks um, making you know writing books, full, full length books, and sort of debunking common myths and and sort of trying to lay out more sophisticated, nuanced understandings of what is this incentive, reward, pleasure, salience, drive, motivation, drive, novelty engine. What is it about? And so uh, I, I'm sure this is this is a um, a standard, a standard explanation you've offered a bunch of times, but just to kind of ground us in your perspective, where would you cite yourself in the, the literature, the conversation between Sapolsky and others? Like, like what's your take on dopamine? What do you think are some of the most relevant and interesting insights uh, to correct common misunderstandings? Yeah. So for me, when I start with dopamine, I like to start with the concept of three-dimensional space that our brain basically divides the world into stuff that is within our arm's reach and everything else um, five feet away to the edge of the universe. And dopamine is the neurochemical that coordinates our brain activity when we process things in the extra dimensional space, uh, extra personal space, excuse me, the space that's outside of our reach. This is where things that we don't have, but either want or need exist. This is where the future is. This is where things that are abstract, non-tangible concepts like beauty and truth exist. So, so now time and, and space, you, you say not it's only time is and it, space. It's, yeah. it's not in the peripersonal, as you describe it, within arms reach and in my here and now, it's beyond that, but it's not just beyond that in dimensionality, it's also in temporality, is that right? That's right, because things in the peripersonal space that are uh, within arm's reach are also in the present. When we interact with them, we interact with them right now. 
But when we think about things that are in the extra personal, outside arm's reach, if we want to interact with them, that's going to take place in the future. So dopamine is really responsible for everything outside of the here and now. Everything we don't have, everything we want, everything that we can imagine. And so I think that a good part of our lives is um, spent uh, with our thoughts in the dopaminergic space. Well, that, that's fascinating, right? Because just what you've described, it almost makes it, you're almost sort of uh, making do- dopamine feel a little more highbrow than it normally gets to be, right? Normally people think of dopamine as instant gratification, which would be the here now, me, mine. You're saying goodness, truth, beauty, the future, you know, like like long-term aspirational ideals and goals. I, I've, I've rarely heard dopamine rehabilitated to such a highfalutin driver. Well, you know, there are different circuits in the brain that um, are driven by dopamine. And the one that people normally think about when they think about dopamine is the mesolimbic circuit. Um, We call that the desire circuit. And that's the one that's associated with sex and drugs and rock and roll. And that's what people normally think about when they think about dopamine. Um, If you want to get mythological, we can associate that with Dionysus. Always. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the god of um, alcohol and partying and um, our lower passions. Panics. Madness. Yeah. Yeah. Madness. Exactly. That's right. You have too much dopamine in uh, that circuit. It not only leads to addiction and craving and things like that, it also leads to psychosis, schizophrenia. So they are pretty closely related. And, and the ancients knew that when they assigned the different roles to their gods. But there's another circuit. Uh, the mesocortical. And uh, we call this the control circuit. It's also been called the executive circuit. Mythologically, it's Apollonian. Um, this, uh, the Dionysian circuit, the desire circuit, uh, looks into the future, but not very far. Uh, I want that candy bar. I want that donut. I want that sexual partner. I want that beer. Um, the Apollonian dopamine um, dopamine circuit, the mesocortical one involves the most sophisticated parts of the human brain. And that's the prefrontal cortex right behind the forehead. And this one looks farther into the future. A lot of times it will come and, in. And yet pump- both, and both, both re- respond to and are wired up to the dopaminergic reward systems. You know, it, it's, it's the mesolimbic that is typically the reward system. That's mm-hmm. the one that gives us pleasure. Um, the mesocortical, the Apollonian longer term one, it's not so much about reward. It's about maximizing future resources farther off in the future. So for example, if there is a donut on a plate in front of you, your reward dopamine system might say, wow, I would love to take a bite of that. But your other dopamine system might say, hey, that might give you short-term pleasure, but there's a long-term cost that it like makes Nothing it not tastes as good as thin feels. Plus I got <laughs> spring break washboard apps to get to. Yeah, that thing. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So that one looks farther into the future. And, um, you know, things that exist in the future don't, don't really exist. They don't have a physical existence. And so the circuit also allows us to work with abstract information. Um, things that don't have a physical existence like mathematics, the laws of physics, law, poetry, literature, philosophy, all of these things that are so important to um, human development. And this is the highbrow aspect of dopamine. 
Beautiful. Beautiful. Now, now, when you were just talking about the peripersonal and, and the extrapersonal, right? What's what's in arm's reach here and now versus what's beyond me net now and next? Um, that sounds an awful lot like our colleague Daniel uh, uh, Andrew Huberman's um, take on visual acuity and eye tracking, and how if you're looking in in the immediacy, you do think now and just hunter gatherer style. If you look to her, her and horizon line, you tend to extrapolate a day to a week. So literally kind of getting above above it all and standing on a hill or a bluff or a mountaintop, looking out over the ocean, those things really do clear our heads. They really do change our perspectives. Um, is your nomenclature, the sort of the peri-extrapersonal, is that is that connected in any way to that visual acuity cognition linkage and research, or was it originally independently uh, derived? Let's see. So, um, so the the the, the three dimensional space in terms of neural processing um, comes out of some work that was done on fruit bats, and uh, I, I can't remember. Yeah, it's I can't remember really a Monty Python one. sketch. You know, <laughs> fruit bat. Yeah, that. Um, yeah, it was done by somebody who was doing work um, supporting the idea that fruit bats are closer to human beings evolutionarily. That you than you would expect. Uh, I think it was called the flying primate theory, um, and yeah, and, and it found that this this distinction in how the brain processes the different kinds of space, and realized that that plays an extraordinarily important role in the organization of the human brain. Hmm. But you know, um, we our eyes work differently in the peripersonal and the extrapersonal space. Mm -hmm. When we're looking at something close, we have smooth tracking. If you follow a finger, your eyes will go smoothly. Mm -hmm. You can't do that in the distance. It's not possible to track something smoothly in the distance. We have what are called saccades, where our, our, eyes, our eyes jump in a ballistic fashion. Nice. Um, and, and then what impact does that have, the eye tracking, the, the, the herky-jerky motioning? Is that, is that perceiving things in chunks? I, I feel like there, there was a there was an MIT study on sort of cognitive buffering where we're sort of forever filling in the, lot, the trailing 15 seconds of reality with what we expect to be in the frame kind of thing. Is it, is it, a, is it a hiccupy kind of, um, yeah, I would just say, say the ocular nerve is just one of those quirks of our design? Or is it something it, it, something me more mechanical with the ocular? You know, I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I, I think that possibly it's not worth smooth tracking things that are far off yeah. in the distance because it doesn't give you enough information. But as a clinician, as a psychiatrist who treats patients, I can tell you that there's a very interesting clinical use for that. Um, and, and that is that patients who are living with PTSD will often undergo a treatment called EMDR. I was just about to ask me about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. And, and basically what they're forced to do is they're forced to do smooth pursuit and that pulls them into the present moment, into the here and now, uh, and allows oh, interesting. them to Is it, is it a sort manage. of anti-dissociative? It's an anti-dissociative. That's exactly what it is, right? Because people, when they think about their trauma, they tend to dissociate and that prevents them from being able to process it. Interesting, because I mean, this is a, I think, an intentional tangent because this is this is fascinating content. Um, which is, um, we 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 came across in Moscow years ago this sort of like wizard doctor who, behind the Iron Curtain, had been working with the Sami equivalents up in up in the Arctic Circle in the Soviet Union, and he had developed this 
perinatal prenatal matrix of trauma, which fits very well with with Peter Levine and Bessel van der Kolk and kind of the usual suspects these days. Um, but it was eye tracking and it was eye and tongue tracking. And it was using where, you know, and using literally like a reflex mallet as a yardstick of, of development. So like sort of the closer in the eye tracking and tongue tracking where the earlier it was in the developmental phase and it was oh, wow. claiming to be able to identify the time period, zero to six months, six to 36, even, even sometimes in the womb of where the traumatic impacts had happened by the, by the mismatching between visual tracking and tongue tracking, which is, you know, obviously it goes all, you know, to, to your major cranial nerves, vagal nerve, all the bits and pieces, um, and then had interventions indexed to the neurosomatic rewiring prompts needed to mend and remedy where that moment of fracture had happened. So it's a little bit like crossing the midline, cross crawling and crossing midline crossing and kind of motor neuromotor linkages for infants and toddlers. It was along those lines, but remedial and diagnosed by glitches in the eye tracking. So it sounds very congruent. Yeah, yeah. Well, wow, that's fascinating research. Uh, I've Is never that? heard of prenatal trauma before, um, but but we do know that um, experiences that mother ha mothers have while they're pregnant can affect their children's development. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that was uh, Stan Graf's work at Hopkins um, back in the day on prenatal perinatal matrices that he was he was getting access to post the shutdown of LSD research with just his holotropic breathing method, and. I mean, I feel like it went a little bit off the 70s transpersonal psych deep end as far as their sort of, you know, their schematics that they built. Um, but lots and lots, I mean, thousands of patients uh, with subjective anecdotal reporting on, I went back to the womb or I relived a birth experience or, you know, whatever those things would be. So however, you know, however that nonverbal uh, pre-construct uh, aware um, selfhood lodged, lodged neurosomatic inputs, AKA, you know, trauma slash, you know, uh, birthing memories, TBD. Um, but it does seem, it's, it seems fascinating. Now, now, another question I have for you on the, the dopaminergic system is, um, you know, particularly with Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's work and flow and Maslow and the, and the rest and the kind of, you know, and Seligman and the optimal psych space, uh, there's been quite a bit talked about with the notion of the hedonic treadmill. Right, the idea that what first delights us uh, tapers off over time, and I think in, in your TED talk you may you you, you really unpack that. You know, you're sort of like, hey, it, it, to me that feels is 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 what you were describing there basically the flatlining of the dopamine dopaminergic stimulus response in mice and rats being fed in birds in humans um, is because the novelty of it has worn off, right? And, and would you say that it is that at root, the hedonic treadmill is a, basically a reflection of the mechanisms of action of the dopaminergic system? Question one. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the infuriating things about the dopaminergic system is just how quickly it develops tolerance. As yes. soon as we find something we like, we don't like it anymore. Um, you know, you've been, you've been planning for months to like find one that direction. shiny new, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that shiny new purchase and as soon as you get it it's just not interesting anymore mm -hmm. um but you know the dopamine system developed uh to keep us alive and reproducing it did not develop to make us happy and we need to keep that in mind and yes. so the dopamine fact, system quite often is, it's the source of our mis misery oh yeah it, 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 and that happens when we get confused and we think it is the source of our happiness when we're out every day pursuing those dopaminergic thrills and um, not realizing that it's actually making us miserable rather than happy because the point of dopamine is is more that's why we named the book the molecule of more 
It wants to maximize future resources. And if it allows you to be happy, satisfied, and fulfilled, it's not doing its job. The only way it can do its job is by making us unhappy, unsatisfied, and unfulfilled. AKA late stage capitalism. You know, how do we do that? Is that yeah, I mean, to, social, to, right? social media. You know, when was the last time you found yourself scrolling through a news feed, not only bored, but actually dysphoric, feeling bad, but you can't stop because you're thinking, well, one more scroll and I might find that story that will get me all excited and give me a shot of dopamine. And, well, and, yeah, and, we know the guy who invented the infinite scroll. He's now he's now part of the Center for Humane Tech with our, our buddy Tristan Harris trying to make does, amends. Does he regret what he did? Yeah, well, it was like some Python script. It was actually a tricky thing to have constant, endless refreshing. So it was, there was a technical challenge that they just, as engineers, were just trying to solve. They had no idea sure. the bottomless pit they tossed us all into. But listen, I mean, listen that's before, the yeah, <laughs> history of technology. Uh, you know, scientists want to solve really interesting, it's, interesting problems, and all of a sudden they've destroyed the human race. Yeah, it's always like, whoops. You know, my mama, <laughs> my mama should have raised me better. You know, it's just Asperger boys. You know, on the spectrum and just fucking shit up before they have any sense of the complexity. Which, I, we, you know, pin in the map. We're getting back to St. John's and the great books invariably as we transition to your next book. You know, to 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 your new book. Um, but riddle me this, because my experience with the hedonic treadmill was I don't experience it, and because the things that light me up and and you know perceiving pursuing flow states action sports, music, whatever these things would be, you know, sexuality, psychedelics, you, you know, like the whole panoply of sort of ecstatic techno, you know, Eliade's concept of, of, of techniques of ecstasy. Um, particularly, well, I mean, all of them for me are exclusively embodied and therefore never, and they're the real deal. They're not the sugar high. So they never get old. Like, I don't think I will ever get bored in my lifetime of bottomless blower powder and making link turns for 3,000 feet on a blue, blue sky day with friends. Because the neurosomatic inputs, right, are there. They're real and they're back to present tense. It's, and, and the same with an absolute, you know, tear a hole in the floor dance party in front of an, you know, ultra high fidelity sound system by a live band or a producer. Like those moments are, are quintess quintessential glimpses of Kairos and Kairos don't ever get old by definition. Right, right. I so think is there a differentiation between what we're seeking and what we get, you know, and then how satisfying it is over the long term? There's a differentiation between seeking things that will give satisfaction and things that never will. And everything that you describe is not pure dopamine. Everything you describe is a combination of dopamine along with the here and now neurochemical processing. And, and if we take, if we take athletics as being one very easy example, uh, moving your body is something that happens in the here and now. Mm -hmm. Um, especially if you're moving your body, not for some purpose, like walking to the store to get a coffee, but just for the sheer enjoyment of moving your body as one does in sports. Hmm. With music, there, there's dopaminergic pleasures in music. Um, there's, there's the anticipation of your favorite part of the song. But the there's drop. Also any, the it's drop. always the drop, yeah. Yes, that's right. Uh, but there's also an enormous amount of here and now pleasure because it's sensory, it, it, it's engaging um, not only not only uh, hearing, but also other senses as well. So, so you put your finger on it. The way to overcome the hedonic treadmill is mm -hmm. to make sure that your dopaminergic pleasures are liberally mixed in with here and now pleasures, pleasures that mm -hmm. involve the body, 
the senses and and the present moment. Fantastic. So yeah. So from the uh, fl you know flow studies and and action sports side, we would say um, you know the the neurosomatic inputs that are kind of the nectar of of any of these things. It could tr be true for weaving. It could be true for music playing and listening. But it, it's weightlessness, right? And what you see in sports as you know off the lips, as all these kind of things, weightedness, like maximum G's through the nervous system and musculoskeletal system, and polyaxial rotation. And just you know the 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 absolute stimulus to the vestibular and proprioceptive systems. So all of those things are like payoff like slot machines. And then I just read a study this last week, which was uh, show, you know, tracking that subacoustic. So below our ability, our threshold to actually that. acoustically perceive, the more yeah. bass there is, the more people shake their asses. And you're like, yes, tell us something we already knew. Right, but it, it that's, that's a wonderful, <laughs> it's a wonderful study. But now all the music that's going to come out for the next five years is going to be overly based. Well, yes, and it has been for the last ten. But you know, but but so it goes, right? That idea that to me it, it almost feels like you're talking about the sincerest pumpkin patch. You know, like the sincerest dopamine patch is the one that has deeply embodied correlates versus just a neurochemical buzzer, and that could be sugar, that could be cocaine, that could be a a, a superficial non-relational orgasm that could be any 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 host of quick buzzer hits right to the lizard brain monkey yep and and those are the easy hits those are the ones that don't take any work all of the pleasures that you described require an enormous amount of work and effort to prepare yourself for those pleasures but now is that crypto the, puritanism raising its ugly head or is that is that a definitely thing you no it's crypto <laughs> you, you know, I, I think I think it's just the wisdom of age that that we all are looking for quick fixes. We are all looking for shortcuts, uh, and and I I definitely am into being as efficient and as possible, getting the most for the least effort. But as I've gotten older, I've realized that that's a fool's errand. Uh, and mm. in fact, there does seem that the Puritans had it right. There does seem to be a very direct connection between what you put in and what you get out. Mm. Well, you know, and the funny thing is, right, that tees up the kind of uh, Western civ uh, neoliberal colonial critique of like, you know, uh, of that, right? That like that, that is what propped up capital, Calvinist capitalism and everything else. And, and for a long time, I just kind of assigned that to like Max Weber, Protestant Work Ethic 101, right? That it's both our sort of blessing and our curse that we lived in cold environments with winter and had to prepare for them. And we had this eschatological framework that said, buy good works. We're really not sure, but do good works and you get to keep the proceeds. Like that was the kind of, right? That was the Protestant promise. Um, and, you know, and at, you know, at whose feet you could lay many of our, you know, the problems and mutations of our contemporary situation. But then I don't know, have you read uh, braiding sweetgrass that wonderful oh. book by that ojibwa uh, botanist uh, professor it, it's it, it's a gorgeous bit but she tells the story of one of the origin stories of like first man right and and he's up around the great lakes and he comes across this village and the kids are all natty dready headed crusty eyed malnourished the parents are all lolling around zooted to the gills on pure maple syrup so first man's like, this is wrong. What are you guys doing? And and so he takes a birch bucket, giant birch bucket, being first man, he can do these things, and he dilutes all of the roots of all of the of the maple of the, the the entire sugar bush, and dilutes it forty to one. So now they got to work for it, and that is sort of the res restoration of virtue, right, for the Ojibwe people. And you're just like, oh, fascinating. So this is now decoupled 
from the Protestant capitalist work ethic story. And, you, and it gets back to your point. This may just be a feature of nature or at least human nature. Yeah, I think it's a feature of human nature. Another famous place we see that is in Homer's Odyssey, when uh, Odysseus visits the land of the lotus eaters. Um, mm. The lotus is like the, the pure maple syrup. It is so <laughs> delicious that as soon as you eat it, you forget all of your problems and you don't need to do anything. You just want to sit around and enjoy yourself. And o Odysseus wouldn't let his men um, stay there um, because he was on a mission to get home. And I think that that adds something new to this Protestant work ethic thing, that it's not just work for the sake of work. It's not just work to make sure the economy runs. It's that part of the human condition is feeling that we are not yet where we belong. We're not the people we were meant to be. We're not in the place where we feel at home. And that in order to- just, just unpack that. So would you say that, you, are you asserting that as a cross-cultural truism or are you, are you indexing off certain cultures or civilizations that feel particularly represent that? Yeah, I, I can't do a cross-culture because I don't have the education for that, okay. uh, but definitely within the Western civilization, you know, going all the way back to Homer and, and, and seeing it as, as a red thread throughout mm. so much of philosophy and literature. Um, you the know, yearning. we see it, Chris, what's that? The yearning. The yearning, yeah. I, we is there a, a place we've lost or a place we're not yet? And is there a difference? Uh, there's definitely a difference. There's definitely a difference. Um, you know, we can see it in the Christian religion. Uh, the place we lost was Eden, and we yearn for that. But then, of course, there's the new Eden, the new Jerusalem um, uh, of the second coming that is, is even better. And uh, that's something we also yearn for. That, that's our ultimate home. And nobody even knows what that looks like. That that's inconceivable to um, to a human being. So I, I think that this 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 work ethic is really based on a fundamental idea of human nature. That we it, it's very difficult to be happy standing still. We're like sharks. A shark stands still. It dies of asphyxiation. Uh, and I think human beings are are the same. Um, if we stand still, we become petrified, like the people in fairy tales who get turned into stone. Mm, in order for contrast, us to be happy, contrast that with UBI, universal basic income. Good idea or 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 failed, you know, fail to launch. Can, I think can, that in light UBI, of what you just said. Yeah, I think that UBI is dangerous. Um, if it allowed people to do the most meaningful work that they could, it would be a wonderful thing. And, and I think a lot of people would use it and they would go out and they would do meaningful work that, that wouldn't necessarily generate an income, but that's fine. Maybe they would paint, maybe they would sing, they would play a musical instrument, dig a garden, whatever. The risk is though, the people who would use it to buy drugs and um, just sit around doing drugs and alcohol all day long and looking at pornography on the computer. And because that's, of the that's way every that's every young man in America, age 18 to 30 at this point. But yeah, play through. Yeah. The problem with the way the brain is wired, a lot of people are going to take that option. Probably more people will take the um, will take the bong hit porn hub option. More people are going to take that. They're going to take the I'm going to go out and do something really, really hard.
Well, well, so that's the lizard brain fuck monkey conundrum, right? Because we are, if we get the better we get at just pushing our buttons, the more tempting it is to get to the to the land of lotus eaters. By the way, hot take: who are who are today's card carrying lotus eaters? Um, I think they're the people living in mom's basement, playing video games, eating chips, smoking pot, and watching pornography. Okay, which which was all engineered by un, un, unintentionally by sweethearted BJ. Fog, right? And and all of the sort of behavioral, economic, UX design, uh, limbic oh, slot yeah. machine. Not unintentionally, in, intentionally. Those they know all about dopamine, uh, oh, yeah. and they 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 designed their technology specifically to hit those circuits. And, and and they know better than anybody what hits those circuits. Well, so then interesting, and do you mind if I just run an idea past you? Because this is for my next book, which just happens to be focused on novelty and happens to oh, use wow. the dopaminergic system as one of three things. So I was just at a conference with um, the anthropologist Wade Davis. I don't know if you know, he was Nat Geo's exploring residence. He was a Harvard ethnobotanist, um, literally like real life Indiana Jones. Um, and this other fellow, uh, Dr. Bruce Damer, who's a NASA astrobiologist, who's in the last five years has advanced a novel theory of the origins of life to kind of, it's, it's going head to head with the thermal ocean vent thesis. And actually at this point it appears to be gaining a lot of ground, but um, it was in nature, scientific American. It's been published in a bunch of places now, but here's their whole thesis is that it's actually hot springs, not thermal vents um, that were the actual cauldron of original complex life and that it happened in fission fusion. It happened in a boom bust cycle of heating and cooling Right. And, and it's that constant exposure to energy and, and connection and then cooling and dissipation. It was that backing and forthing, right, that then pops out life. And you realize, wow. you know, oh, that's a very comparable discussion and basically, and basically constantly overproducing. So death writes the code to life. And out of the carnage comes the novel, either classically Darwinian natural selection, you know, sort of randomized survival of the fittest or far more interestingly these days, mutations where you get the step function, you get the Stephen Jay Gould punctuated equilibrium kind of moves. You get like, oh, wait, that happened out of nowhere at lickety split because mutation is, is, is far faster. So that being true, not just in primordial soup and literally the bathtub ring around the hot springs of, of yore, right? Um, but then also the next level of novelty is dendritic replication. You know how like, you know, lungs and capillaries and estuaries and roots and branches are all doing the same thing because branching is the fastest way to, to, to propagate novelty again, it's a, but it's a slightly more complex method. And it's, it's the explore exploit notion, you know, and, but because, and branching is the quickest way to do it. It's the quickest way to get maximum oxygenation to capillaries is the, or, or river flow and fluid, fluid, fluid dynamics. Um, but then at the same time, it's not just explore exploit, because if you find it and it's an uncontested niche of novelty, right, you expand right? You maximize it and then you overcook it and you expire. So that's another boom bust death writing the code to a life. It's sort of thanatoerotic, right? And then the third level was the dopaminergic system. Cause I was like, oh, what happens when you get spinal columns and neurochemistry and you might, do, does dopamine precede spinal columns, complex nervous systems? Oh boy. Uh, I don't think so. Not that I know. Okay. It, it may have done different things. Uh, dopamine is also responsible for heating and cooling the body. It, it, nature repurposes these molecules. So yes. it might've been present, but doing something else besides novelty. Fascinating. Okay. So then, so then that whole system, and obviously with sexual reproduction as one of the most novelty producing, right? Innovations. Yeah. yeah. That changed the game. System, right. Yeah. 
And then my final one, and let me let me run this past you, and, and we'll we'll transition into the kind of the the uh, philosophical side, and, and and maybe we can even just jump right in, carry it through into your new book. Um, but the question is, perhaps the fourth is uh, is play, and that obviously predates humanity, primates. It's in corvids. It's in it's in it's in cetaceans. It's it's everywhere. There's a study coming out showing that bees play. They they oh, gave them that. balls, and the bees were rolling the balls around, and there was nothing to be gained except fun. They also navigate via quantum mechanics in some bizarre ass way. So you're like, okay, those are super cool, and and yeah. and maybe and and the, and the hexagonal, the geometric structures of how they organize appears to be remarkably sophisticated, also. But so so the final bit with play is ultimately starts with just innovative stuff, bear cubs, you know, coyotes, whatever. But then goes all the way into Leela, infinite game. Um, and a willingness to choose and therefore protect the emergent novelty, the good, the true, and the beautiful that happens to come out of these endless cyclical, right, recursive natures of, of these otherwise totally amoral novelty engines. Mm -hmm. But as self-aware mm -hmm. sentient participants in the infinite game, do we opt to choose to protect the, the rose petals while, while we may? right? Like that kind of thing. So how does that land to you as far as an, a, a description of the drivers of evolution and consciousness, at least on, at least on this earth, or at least this? Yeah. Galaxy? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is this is definitely a book. This is not Dude, an this article. This is chapter fucking one. This, I literally, oh, yeah. my outline right now, that is chapter <laughs> one. And I'm, and I looked at it and I'm like, I think I'm crazy. Like this, most people, this would be their career. And I'm trying to shoehorn this fucking thing. And it, I, oh yeah, it's, it's bizarre. There's so much there. There's so much there. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think I think you start unpack it, and and you're gonna have you're gonna have forty thousand words before you realize it. All right, maybe I should just slow my roll and chunk it out because because arguably yeah. it, for me it was trying to answer the what is the point when we come to the collapse of all of our stories, right? Our teleological certainty is out the fucking window at this point. Nobody's everybody's questioning the Western progress narrative. You know, people are latching right. on like Yuval Harari's doom and gloom, like ten thousand years ago everything was groovy, and then patriarchy, agrarianism, hierarchy, priest class, you know, animal husbandry, boo. And you're like, no, come on, we have to have a better. We have to have a better contextualization of the role of self-aware sentience, you know, in the bigger unfolding thing. And my my gut sense is just evolution is an amoral novelty engine. Nothing yeah. more or less, right? Yeah. And most of the problem of evil is just the problem with our own personal life-bound preferences and references, and you know, and and the the uh, temporal mismatch between like, oh, a you know, a forest fire burns, and then up come green shoots, and look at life. It's like, yeah, tell that to someone whose house is on fire. Right. right. So, so, so I agree. Nature evolution is amoral, but it produced it produced human beings who have a sense of morality. Did yes. that change the game? Do we say okay now everything is different, or, or we do say well the, the engine underneath is still amoral, so not that much has changed really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I think uh, Kevin Kelly, the the futurist and founder of Wired back in the day. Had a, had a beautiful quote, and I, I can share it with you afterwards if you're interested, but he was basically sort of like, it's so much easier to imagine the devil than God, because we know yes. this all goes to decay in the end. It's so easy to point out all of that stuff. God is highly improbable. You and I are highly improbable. Every flower that was ever that's ever bloomed is wildly improbable. So we have to get better at preserving, cherishing, and believing in yeah. the improbable, yeah. which, which once again feels in a beautiful way to go back to free will. Right, it is it is the power of the choice because even even absolute virtue enforced unilaterally, 
tops down becomes fascistic and hegemonic over time. Like it sort of sort of seems inescapable, doesn't it? It has to be the truth. I wouldn't. Yeah, I wouldn't even use the word virtue to talk about something that's being forced upon someone. Uh, virtue has to be a decision that comes from the inside. Otherwise, that's it's just beautiful slavery. Fail -safe. That's a beautiful failsafe. If that, if if you park that at the end as an addendum to the definition of virtue, that it, that mm -hmm. it is it is it is fused with free will, consent. Right, right. It's got to be. But you know, we, we're we're at such an interesting point in history in, in which the the old stories that that worked for thousands of years are now starting to break down. Western yeah. culture is really built upon the Judeo-Christian tradition. And now the majority of people in Western culture no longer are getting meaning from that. And, and the question is, where's, what's the next story going to be? This is something that Carl Jung talks about a lot. Uh, and he points to folklore and fairy tales in, in which you constantly see the theme of the aged king dying and the the young, yeah, 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 and, and the young prince, sometimes the young peasant, the young commoner, um, taking over the throne to issue in a new golden age. And the lesson of the story is that when the old king tries to hang on to power, when he won't let go and, and allow the new age to come, terrible things happen. Um, and, and that's where we are. We look are at, at the look end. Look at you, old Joe B. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're at the end. Yeah, that's right. We're at the end of the old age. And, and, and Jung, Jung said that, that the new story has to come from the unconscious. You can't get a group of brilliant people together and say, all right, let's figure out what the new story is going to be. It's got to arrive organically um, from the soil of human unconscious. And, and, and there's no way to predict what it's going to be. Like QAnon, just just the chance. I think Jung would not have approved of 4chan and 8chan. I think he would have drawn the line. So, yeah. Because I mean, look, but, now you've got the burbling of this sort of like this this subterranean, fetid mind swamp that is this sort of concoction of everything from 500 years of absolute whack nut spiritual fanatics being the settlers of this continent right from from the european migrations to to an absolutely untethered isolated buffered wildly exceptional little petri dish of peace and prosperity which we took we took for absolute granted and proof of the 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 validity of our ways not just a giant continent two oceans more war navigable waterways and harbors for transportation than everywhere else on the earth combined peaceful neighbors to the north and south and infinite amounts of fossil fuel and natural and raw materials you're like it doesn't matter we could have done marxism we could have done capitalism we could have done you could have done bokanonism and it would have fucking worked with with those cards you know so so the the um I don't trust American education, which, which, which is, I mean, it's, it's vapid. It is presentist. It has virtually no relationship or humility to an understanding of history as it's taken place around the world and across cultures. So talk to me about your education and even how you went from the great books, which is, which is something I seriously considered doing also. Right. And we, and we, we, we raised and taught our kids doing the great books via, via a, a wonderful homeschooling program. Um, so talk to me about the unification, because when I think of psychiatrists, I think of folks that have a generally a biomechanical model of the human psyche and, a, and an itchy scription pen. And they are just, they, 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 they mediate via Medicaid. And, and you do not seem to be of that cloth. 
So share with us how you how you got to writing this book because this seems like a pretty beautiful synthesis of your entire all of your passions and interests. Yeah, yeah. Wow. All right. So let me start with 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 my education with the great books. So yeah. I'm in high school. I take the the PSAT or the SAT, and, and I'm getting all of this PR material from colleges telling me how great they are. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and they're showing me their athletic fields, their buildings, this and that. One college is different. St. John's College, they send me a list they're of like, the We books. play croquet. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But they're not, they're not bragging about their school. They're bragging about the books that the students read. Um, it's the great books of Western civilization the most important works of philosophy, history, mathematics, science, literature, this, the most important stuff that's been written since the dawn of history. You start out with Homer, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, you work all the way up to the present time with uh, Newton, um, Einstein, Lobachevsky, um, uh, all of the Marx, all of the moderns. There are no lectures because the philosophy at St. John's is that nobody's an expert on the great books. Everybody has to read the original sources to make up their mind for themselves. There's no textbooks because textbooks are spoon feeding. You gotta go to the original things, grapple with them and deal with it. Uh, there are no tests, there's no exams. You read the books, you write papers and you talk about them. Yeah. So it, it, it was a unique education and um, I think it's an absolutely wonderful education. I, I, I think that, as you point out, education today is devolving. Um, one of my patients says that um, it doesn't matter what class he goes to. Uh, every class is the same. It's politics. That's Ooh, all the professors right want to talk about. Yeah, e e even in his math yeah. class, in his science class, in, in his literature class, in his history class, it's all about Republican and Democratic politics. What? And yeah, and he says he feels like he's being cheated of an education. Uh, yeah, yeah. John, John, John hates been um, taking increasingly strident stands on that. Oh yeah, oh yeah. So anyway, so the great books. I, I'm a big fan of it. St. John's College. St. John's recently just dramatically lowered their tuition, by the way, to try oh, to make their education in reach of everybody. I think it was Beautiful. a wonderful move. Well, but now, now the follow-up question is, is why didn't you do the obvious and just become a Jungian psychotherapist? What yeah. drove you forwards? That, that was my plan. It, you know, after graduating from St. John's, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I sort of rattled around for a while. And then I picked up a, a book by Carl Jung and I, I was absolutely fascinated. And, and I said, this guy knows what he's talking about. He's got the answer. So my plan was to become a Jungian analyst. I, I wanted to go to, to uh, Switzerland, study at the Jungian Institute. I went back to St. John's and, and talked to one of my professors who, who had been a mentor and a friend. And he told me to go to medical school. He said, Dan, the most interesting advances these days are being made biomedically. And if you want to study the mind, you've got to understand the brain. Mm. And, and I took his advice and I do not regret it. I, I think that he's absolutely right. I, I think that understanding the brain from a molecular point of view, from the point of view of neurotransmitters mm. and circuits and growth hormones and all of that really sheds a fascinating light on the philosophical approach to the mind. Beautiful. But so, so then that was my, my follow-up question, just reading the, uh, the, the gloss um, on your new book, right? Which was 
if you're discussing, I mean, my presumption here is that when you say unconscious, you're you're loosely referring to kind of a Jungian model. Is that fair to say? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. But right. then, but so help me reconcile exactly what you just said about the medical side, which is that um, contemporary notions of self. I mean, you can go back to uh, Dave Eagleman's Incognito, as well as you know all the embodied cognition research since is is suggesting that our notions of self, id ego, super ego, conscious, unconscious, those kinds of things. Um, really tend not to bear much notion. The notion of the notion of Umwelt's, uh, Chris Audrey's at Harvard Business School's ladder of inference, just ways we perceive and stack and construct meaning. Lisa Feldman Barrett's work on how emotions are made and interception, all that right is basically saying the idea that there's like ten percent of me that's self-aware narrating, and there's another ninety percent just like that that I don't have access to. But I could if I lie on a couch and talk about it, or have some dream work or some some non-ordinary state state access to it. Um, seems like that's been tossed out the window to say yes, we have about that ten percent. And I think David used that memorable analogy of like our consciousness is the equivalent of the headlines on the Sunday edition of the New York times. That's it compared to yeah. the, the body of information. So wow, I just I mean, don't think that's true. I don't think that's true at all. Um, um, if we look at the brain as a whole, um, it, it's capable of about um, 5 million calculations per second, um, 5 million processing events per second. Um, but, but the conscious mind is only able to do about five to 10. Uh, and, and that's why if I were to ask you to read a paragraph out loud, you could not do that while at the same time planning what you make for dinner. Uh, the bandwidth of your conscious mind, uh, what, what Jung calls the ego, is extremely narrow, and, and we we don't need a laboratory to prove that. We can prove that right now. You can only do one thing at a time. You read a sentence, that, that's about 10 to 15 bits per second. That's it. That's all you can do. Whereas the brain, while you're doing that, the parts of the brain that you're not aware of are, are, are doing an amazing amount of work. Um, they're yes. coordinating millions of individual muscle fibers to maintain your posture in your chair. They're secreting hormones into your bloodstream. They're making sure you have proper oxygenation. Um, and, and they're processing memories that you're not aware of in order to allow you to read these words and make sense of it. So, so I couldn't disagree more strongly. The division well, of the well, conscious well, let's, mind let's being extremely weak and extremely limited, and then this massive processing power in the unconscious, I think is incredibly well supported by the data. And I would point you to Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow. Yeah. I, think, I think that's the closest we come uh, to the psychoanalysts in terms of modern science, the way he yes. describes fast thinking the unconscious and slow thinking the conscious yeah so you're you're basically just making a case that we you know it, it's it's honorary bergson it's the reducing valve of consciousness it's it's all those kind of ideas but basically below the neck below legibility is 90 percent of our cognitive metabolic capacity that is doing all sorts of useful helpful things for our system yeah. whether we whether we know it in real time or not is that fair yeah that fair that does half a million more times more work so forget about 90 it's 99 point whatever half a million is going to take us up to yeah so, so unconscious so, so mind yes is half a million times more powerful yesterday on the neurophysiological level totally gotcha my my yeah. query my curiosity will be 
does Jung smuggle in, right, the the transpersonal into his quote unquote unconscious? We've just made a very good neurophysiological defense and articulation of the boundary space of that truth claim. But bang, got it. 90% body brain shit, interception. But when you then segue into archetypes, when you take a left turn at a collective unconscious, when you start, right, you start bumping it up that you've, 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 pulled open the Overton window and all sorts of things are smuggled in, which would then lead me to, can, can, here's, here's a potential synthesis. Let me, let me pitch this to you and you shoot it down or prop it up, which is, which is possibility, the possible um, synthesis of this is give that to interoception, give that 90% neurophysiological category. And then also perhaps tap the button on, we're moving from a monist materialist understanding of consciousness is just the production of complex synapses in a brain to a dualist notion of potentially, you know, you are a receiver, the thing that, that David Eagleman did resurface, you know, in, in, in incognito, not to die on the hill, but to at least say, hey, man, we've at least got to think about this, which gives us then access to all the transpersonal, non-ordinary realms of archetype form, information, inspiration, the muses, take your pick. But it's not conflating that with the interoceptive 90% that we were discussing prior. How does that track? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's most appropriate for scientists to work in the materialist realm uh, mm -hmm. and not to go beyond that. Beyond that, I, I think, is the realm of philosophers and theologians, uh, the, the realm of, of what I would call metaphysics uh, mm -hmm. and anything beyond uh, what we find in the standard model of fermions and bosons. Um, if it's not made up of fermions and bosons, I'm going to say we can't study it scientifically. And, and I, I would say that, that that doesn't limit us as much as it might sound, because I think that, that saying um, that, that saying transpersonal is, is a fancy word for something that's very, very simple. So Jung talked about the collective unconscious, mm -hmm. uh, that, that we all share these archetypes and I think that from one perspective, that can sound mystical. It can sound metaphysical that we're talking about something beyond atoms and molecules. But I don't think it needs to be. I, I think that the way Jung described it was very, very simple. He said, all human beings, healthy human beings, have two arms, two legs, two lungs, two eyes, one tongue, one heart, 10 toes, 10 figures. Uh, we all share a common anatomy. The same is true with our brains. And so to say that everybody shares the archetype of the wise old man is no more mystical than saying everybody has 10 fingers and 10 toes. That there is a bedrock basic commonality to our psyche that's simply a result that, that genes, that DNA makes brains in certain ways and that those circuits are what gives rise to archetypes. Hmm. Well, I mean, do we even need to do that though? Can't we just, you know, staying within the Jungian kind of uh, vernacular, right? Can't we just evoke that we are discussing the mythopoetic, the imaginal realm, right? Which requires creative cognition to, to, to animate. And we just simply have a different set of aesthetic judgments and criteria beyond, you know, Cartesian sense yeah. experience. Then we just created yeah, I, Rome. We just tapped in at the threshold. We said, hey, now we're switching to imaginal and we're in the mythopoetic. Good true, beautiful yeah. aesthetics. I think that's a very effective way to go at it. The only reason I want to emphasize its, its compatibility with materialism is because I think that Jung is sometimes um, unfairly dismissed as being a mystic. 
And well, I, I, think an initiate. I think it's fair to say, wouldn't you agree that he's an initiate into whatever the hell he was initiated into? He went through it to get there. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I think that he had some mystical ideas, but I don't think you need to move beyond uh, materialistic science in, in order to understand or support his ideas. What um, about the Gnostics I, I, and the Archons, right? I mean, if you want to get archetypal, right, there has the, the, the Manichaean showdown between light and dark, right? And some eschatesthesia of some sensing of, of the eschaton, right? Some inflection point. That seems to be deeply hardwired, as does some East of Eden mm -hmm. experience, right? Native tribes. We used to be one with all the nations that could talk and understand each other. And then whatever the fuck happens. And now we hunt them and say sorry. Right. Right. So, so yeah. everybody's got that stuff. Now, how, how would you, um, is that, I mean, particularly within the, the Western tradition, right? That, that's a fairly, I mean, that's Lord of the Rings, that's everything, right? Like, like they all follow those beats. Would you say those two are, um, neurophysiologically mediated and, and basically on, on that deeper substrate? If so, how? You know, as a psychiatrist, I'm going to say all human behavior, all products of the mind, art, literature, poetry, folklore are, are neurobiologically mediated. Okay. Um, Ooh, listen, as a, as, a, as a person, as, yeah. as a person, I don't believe that. But but as a scientist, that's the only thing I can validly talk about. So you're sort of um, hamstrung by your guild. Yes, that's right. <laughs> because because listen, the only reason people are going to buy my book is because I'm a psychiatrist. They're not interested in my my own opinion. Uh, there's nothing special about my opinion that makes it superior to anyone Dude, else's. Your, your medical background with the great books is rad. That is a kick-ass, unique experience. If you, oh, you thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. It's don't don't shirk that, man. That kind of says matters. And for me, I was not a Campbellian, right? I was Robert Gravesian. Like, 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 because to me, Campbell was a, he, he was pulling it. It's like Kerouac writing. Kerouac was not that cool. Neil Cassidy was that cool. Gary Snyder was that cool. Kerouac wasn't and and the, and the same the same with these I, I think that there is a there is a um there's a synthesis that you're offering that is timely that's really important and that the, you know as we engage narrative collapse and what many are calling a meaning crisis right you're really considered passing in a way that is non-doctrinal Right, but it's coming at it from the sort of just sort of these are emergent properties. We can name them, notice them, discuss them. This is there's this, you know it's probably more within the academic tradition. To me, that's super worthwhile. So so give us give us the the thesis of of your latest book. I, I want to hear All and right. understand it. Yeah. So you know you've you've absolutely put your finger on my grandiosity, uh, and that is that is my hope that that by that, that by bringing you know philosophy and neuroscience together in a way that the average uh, educated reader can understand uh, that that will lead to a new way of uh, our seeing ourselves and maybe plant the seeds for us finding a new way to have meaning in, in this world as, as the old stories die away. But, yeah. but the thesis of the book is that um, we don't appreciate the role that our unconscious plays in our lives. Um, that 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 we think we're in charge above the neck in between the ears. Um, if I want to think about an elephant, I can think about an elephant. If I want to plan what I'm going to do tomorrow, we think that we can decide what we're going to think in our head and nothing is further from the truth. The vast majority of what goes on inside our heads is outside of our control. 
Uh, it's the most important things that take place in our heads and we totally don't appreciate it. And we can dramatically improve the quality of our lives if we gain a better understanding and a better relationship of these unconscious processes. Fantastic. And, and then how do we do that? Is that the realm of story and myth? Yeah, I think so. I, I think the first step is to, to acknowledge what's going on. Let me just give you, give you a sense of what's unconscious, all right? Let me just mention two things. The first is emotion. Whether you're happy, sad, irritable, angry, generous, whatever, you have no control over that and probably nothing determines the quality of your life more than your emotions, all right? That's number one. Number two, desire. Every morning you get up and you plan your day around getting the things that you want, either in the short term or in the long term. That guides your life. But who decides what it is that you want? not you. Uh, that's outside of your control. A lot of times we know that the things that we desire, the things that we're working for and sacrificing for are bad for us. Uh, maybe we're pursuing a partner that we know is terrible for us. Maybe we're pursuing a career that we know is really not going to go anywhere or, or we're not going to enjoy. It's, it's just going to be a life sentence of doing something that we hate. We don't get to decide what it is that we want, but that determines the course of our lives. It determines the course of our day. And so the unconscious mind is really calling the shots. And so that's my argument about why it's worthwhile getting to know this entity inside your head a little and then bit. And what's better. the way out? What's the way out? Do you have to do you have to do the ball of yawn into the into the maze? I mean, how, do we have to go and seek the boon? Like what what yeah. actually unlocks it? Yeah. So here here's the, here's the deal. I mean, remember that old 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 movie, old TV show, The Odd Couple? Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, so you know, the conscious mind in some ways is like Felix Unger. Uh, we're, we're the very neat. We want everything to be ordered. We want everything to be proper. We want everything to be in its place. Uh, but we've got the other guy, I can't remember his name. Oscar. Walter Matt, Oscar, yeah, who's just an absolute slob. Uh, and and he, he just goes by instinct, and, and he's very animal-like. And, and that's how our unconscious mind is. It, it, it's a, much closer to- in the parlance. Yeah, that's right, that's right. And so we may wish, like um, Felix did, that we didn't have this horrible roommate, but we did. And- Ultimately, the two of them together formed a more complete person than either one of them separately. And so what we've got to do is we've got to get to know this horrible roommate better, and we've got to ally with that person so that we can become whole. Mm. Beautiful. And then, and then so, so, okay, so, so cognizance up, right, the, of the Beowulf. Right, like we have to, we have to um, wrap our heads around that. What, what stories, what myths, um, to you, feel most apropos of this moment? That that literally, you know, sometimes there are those overlays between Kronos and Kairos. Like the the moment takes on mythic and epic proportions. The lives of men uh, become are, are sort of are sort of played on a chessboard on, on Olympus. Like, what is your what what story are we in right now? And, yeah. and, and what stories do, and or what stories do we need to start retelling and living into? The, the unconscious is so powerful and it's so alien 
that when it acts on us, it feels like a supernatural force. And uh, our, our language is full of this. We, 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 we say it without even realizing what we're saying. You know, somebody uh, does something incredibly stupid and we say, oh my God, what possessed her to do that? Possessed. We use the old fashioned language of the supernatural. And so I think that the best stories to help us better come to terms with our unconscious are stories about the supernatural, stories about magic, which is why I, I, I titled the book Spellbound. Yeah, and a good um, title. <laughs> thank you. Uh, and, and you know, religious stuff is helpful, but religion comes with so much baggage. It comes with so much, so much baggage that, that that's probably not going to be as helpful as some of the older stories, fairy tales and myths. And I think that the right way to consume them is, is not to pick up an anthology and read myth after myth, story after story, but just to read one. And um, don't even think about it. Just read it and see what happens. And, and, and try to pay attention to the kinds of thoughts, fantasies, dreams that spontaneously arise after reading a fairy tale or a myth. Uh, pay attention to your emotional reactions. I don't know about you. I really have a great deal of respect for that kind of literature, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't exactly say I. I enjoy it. Uh, I find well, most reading of them these, are pretty whacked. I mean, the Brothers Grimm are whacked. whacked. Like, yeah, yeah. The yeah. Grail legends. And if you're going to read you're a like, fairy like, tale, like, don't don't read the Disney adaptation. Go out and get the Brothers Grimm. Where they um, all die. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and let they it work. Horrendous. You. You're like you read this to children. You you sick bastards. Yeah. I know, I know. But boy, if you had any idea what was going on inside of children's heads, you would be shocked. They're little savages. Um, <gasps> That's hilarious. Yeah. They're little savages. That's perfect. That's perfect. So, yeah. so, so specifically out of the whole, out of the Western canon or, or anywhere else that's been alive for you, um, which myths are we in right now? Like what feels, what, like, because I mean, is, is quote unquote modern man, are we too clever for our own britches? Like, have we, have we neuroticized our way into sort of the post mythic or are there actually deep ancient stories kind of same as it ever was that we're just stumbling our way through right now? Yeah. I think, I think that uh, the, the myth that we are in is where um, the king has become old and decrepit and okay, as was, what's that okay boomer <laughs> yeah that's right that's right and, and and when i say the king you know I, i'm thinking about um the judeo-christian um i'm thinking about the judeo-christian tradition uh and also um just the tradition of states with strong central governing powers uh mm -hmm. where you have one culture and and everybody follows that culture. Like in the 1950s, uh, we had the monoculture. And that worked out really, really well for a little while until you had the new generation rebelling against it and, and saying, we don't like it. it the monoculture is falling apart. And, and so instead, we have we have a million little subcultures. You know, we've got Reddit with all of its subreddits. Um, everything is fractured. And that has advantages and disadvantages. The advantage is that there is, um, we don't have this pressure to conform. People can be an individual much more now than they could in the past. The disadvantage though, is that there's a sense of alienation. 
there's not one thing that we can all agree on. Um, and, and there's this sense that our society is fracturing into a million different pieces and falling apart. Mm. And, and does, does this current earth crisis, I mean, some people talk about this as, you know, wages of sin, right? This is self-eradicating self late stage capitalism. You know, we, we get what's coming to us. Some people can see this as birth pangs. Uh, and 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 the pain of labor and at some some depending on you know whatever people's particular hermeneutics are some new jerusalem right some happily ever after on the other side of this and just like reframing the pain and suffering uh, are there are there any you know old timey or even contemporary i mean film you know novels anything that comes to mind as to like what feels like the appropriate story joanna macy the ecologist and and Zen uh, priestesses, you know, has called us the people of the passage, you know, that are starting to articulate these kind of transitional narratives. What feels most true for you? How, wh what would you share with folks as to saying, hey, this is how it appears to me. This is the mythopoetics of our moment. Yeah. Our future. Boy, I wish I could think of a specific story because I know that there are, there are many, many dozens of stories. Um, but um, let's go to the very end of the Lord of the Rings. Mm. Um, after Sauron has been defeated, um, that should be the happy ending, but it's not. There, there, there's, there's a task to be done, and you have to clean up the Shire, right? They return home from the Shire, and, and it, it's full of corruption and, and criminals uh, because the central power has fallen apart and the new power has not yet taken its place. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think that that's where we are. I'm an optimist. I, I think there are all kinds of wonderful things on the horizon. You know, I, I read this funny thing. Somebody was, um, somebody was complaining about the national debt and how we're le it's a terrible thing that we're leaving um, all of this debt to our children and our grandchildren. And somebody said, screw them. They're going to have flying cars, you know, uh, they're, they're going to be they're going to be perfectly happy. And, and I think that I think that we are on the brink of some major breakthroughs. If we can make fusion energy or work, that was a sociopathic statement, possibly. Listen, if we can make fusion energy work, unlimited clean energy, uh, we don't have a climate problem anymore. OK. Uh, we can pull carbon out of the air, and it doesn't matter how inefficient or expensive it is, because with fusion, we have unlimited clean energy. We're going to have quantum computing. We're going to have artificial intelligence. I think that the problems of scarcity, the problems of atoms and molecules are going to be solved. You sound but, like Ray Kurzweil now. But that doesn't solve the problem of, of psychology. It, it doesn't solve the problem of meaning and growth and fulfillment. I think ultimately that's going to be the bigger problem um, mm. than, than, than problems with climate and, and starvation and that sort of thing. Interesting. Interesting. Well, hard saying not knowing. It's, it's, we're basically just like you know, racing backwards down the Kuznets curve. You know, it's like, can we use the technology of this carbon boom to actually innovate and yeah. navigate a seamless transition to next gen renewables and sustainables with all of, with all of our complex machinery and whiz bang tech? Or do we go back to, you know, Einstein's, you know, fourth world war being fought with sticks and stones? You know, do we, do, yeah, do we have yeah, a what's gonna happen? the capacity to innovate our way out of this pickle? That's right. It's a race. It's a race. Are, are we going to destroy our environment first or are we going to use our technology to figure out a way to save it? And, and, and right, I, I vote on save it. I think that's going to win 
but nobody can predict right now. Well, we definitely are self-interested in the monkeys. So we're going to, we're, we're going to get Richard die trying. You know? Yeah, that's right. Um, but well, well, final, final thing, Dan, my, my, in the realm of archetypes, um, I was going to ask you just, which do you think are most prevalent or needed for us right now? But then this other thought came in. So, so let me share it with you, which is um, we had uh, Princeton scholar, Elaine Pagels uh, come to one of our gatherings this summer in Aspen. So we had this fireside chat and, and she's absolutely fascinating. She's the preeminent scholar in early Christian Gnostic gospels, uh, original translator, that kind of thing. And, and, and we were talking about one of her translations of the book of Job and how um, originally it was just a story of Yahweh and Job but it really seemed in, irreconcilable from a plot line. It's like either he's all powerful and a total dick or he's not powerful enough to stop this evil from happening. It's a double bind, right? And and so she, most folks don't didn't know this. I mean, I only knew it because I read her stuff, but it was, it was basically, there was a secondary author centuries later, introduces Satan, Satan as the opposer, right? Um, and the, hence went Western Civ, right? We had the duality of God is all pure and true. And then there has to be the opposer right to, to to allow for all the bad shit versus trickster gods right which was zeus which was in, indigenous ones african north american all around the world the kind of what me worry prankster prankstery puckish much more panish than dionysian than apollonian what do you think because you just laid out the techno utopian optimist bit right completely congruent with stephen pinker very because while uh, hans rosling the, the rest right versus the trickster element so now i'm asking you to sort of respond from your st john's side of the side of the coin right what, what do you think about our, the, our ongoing hubris our perpetual faustian bargains the, the law of external you know unintended externalities and consequences and how do we integrate the trickster in a way so as not to end up needing to get pranked by him yeah, so so Jung was not a fan of the Judeo-Christian God because of exactly what you said. He said he's one-sided. Um, it, you you can't have a deity that's all good um, be, because um, yeah, you could put all the evil in uh, the devil, but that doesn't quite work out because the devil is not the equal of God. Um, God's the mm -hmm. creator. The devil is the created, and, and so so what Jung says what happens is that that's all an interesting the good distinction. That's a really interesting yeah. distinction. Not that not that good and evil, light and dark, co-arose. One is subsidiary to the other. That's right. That's right. And 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 the, what the theologians say uh, is that evil doesn't have its own existence. Evil is simply twisting goodness, uh, warping it, perverting it. Um, but with the Manichaean view, the older view, uh, light and dark were equivalent. And all of the gods had equal amounts of light and dark. And that's certainly true of the unconscious. The unconscious does amazing things for us. It gives us inspiration, energy, passion to do wonderful things, but also gives us hatred and misery and aggression. So light and dark. Um, what, what do we do with that in, in our modern times in, in which yes. modern civilized people no longer believe in evil gods? We believe in a God who is all good. Yeah. I think that's a story that hasn't been written yet. I, I think that the problem of evil is one that has not yet been solved. And it may be that finding the next chapter of the story is going to involve figuring that out. Mm. My sense is it's just the creative destruction on the backside of Schumpeter and novelty engines, death writing the code to life. If, you, if you're dying, it sucks. If you're just if you're on the if you're on the high side of that, it, it's it's 
happy days. So, so final question. I, 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 I'm glad I remembered to ask you. Let me let me run this past you because you were just referencing the kind of Jungian archetypes. Freud also famously famously um, drew some parallels, fledgling uh, between the unconscious and our perception of UFOs. Right. So right. That notion, right. Right. That we have othered our subconscious or projected elements of our psyche projected, to yeah. come back yeah. to us. Right. Yeah. So yeah. what about? I just read, I think it was like in the span of 10 days, a couple of Vice magazine updates on a couple of new releases from the US government. And, and the first one was, hey, we're no longer calling them unidentified aerial phenomena. We are having to now include terrestrial and aquatic. And you're like, wait, what the fuck? Like, what would prompt you to have to say that, right? Then they said, um, for us to release any more materials um, from our UFO uh, files right now would constitute a national security risk. You're like, that's a rather bold statement, like, like to, and very much keeping them close to the vest. And then the final one was a Stanford study set up to assess, I don't know how many, hundreds of known and documented patients with brain scans, pre-post contact with whatever the hell their newest acronym is, um, those things. And they were all showing meaningful, meaningful brain mutations to light damage, almost like Havana syndrome-y kind of stuff. And you're like, wait, that's material culture. Like that's real stuff. They're having to update this thing to be air, land, and sea. They can show up anywhere, right? And no, you can't know more. It would break you. So, what is your sense of how how a a, a seeming? I mean, just the, the the fact that that those are the squares in Congress. This is the level of information leakage and disclosure, and this is the amount of things that people are willing to say publicly in broad daylight to journals of record. You're like, what? So, what would be your sense if, in the next five to ten years, that actually did in fact punch through into shared collective awareness and acceptance? What 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 are the Jungian implications there? Yeah, yeah. All right. So, so using the old new phenomenon of what? What, what do they call it? Um, unidentified aerial phenomenon. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. UAPs. Yeah, UAPs. So, so uh, that word is intentionally ambiguous. It mm -hmm. it it clearly leaves out aliens, uh, life forms from other planets. Mm -hmm. um, the. the the idea that we have been visited from life forms from other planets um, is a difficult one to support um, simply because the conditions for life are, are, are so difficult and, and complex life, intelligent life, that it's almost certain that there's no life in our galactic neighborhood, at least. Um, if aliens visited us, they must have come from very far away. Um, so far away, it, it raises very difficult questions uh, about the technology necessary to get us here. To me, it, it, it seems um, it seems far fetched, mm -hmm. but I, I know a lot of very very smart people believe in it. Mm -hmm. A colleague of mine, a psychiatrist, very intelligent person, I mentioned. You know, there's a Harvard psychiatrist who says that every patient who comes in for psychiatric evaluation should be asked about alien abduction because it's far more common than we believe. Mm. And, and I mentioned that as a joke. And the guy's like, oh no, he's absolutely right. I believe that's true. Something like 10% of my patients have been abducted by aliens. Mm, and I, I don't know, that doesn't, that, that doesn't seem that, rational that, to me. That's in a Harvard practice? Yeah. Fucking lefties up in Cambridge. I'll tell you what. <laughs> so, so, so the thing that Jung pointed out is just how appealing this is, and, and 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 he believed that UFOs were a projection of what he called the self, and that mm -hmm. is the unification of the conscious and the unconscious, mm -hmm. um, the, the highest state 
the human and, and now is it is it transpersonal like it's it's our collective self or is it each of ours each of ours platonic sense do yeah. they do any mind meld up up top no 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 because no, i, I was going to ask you Teo de chardin's neurosphere like what what are the parallels uh similarities and differences between that jungian notion and, and his neurosphere i'm curious yeah no, Jung was very, Jung talked about the collective unconscious, but he was very focused on the individual. Um, and and he, he had negative feelings about collectivism. He felt that collectivism did violence uh, to individuality and should be resisted. And to the entire continent twice in his lifetime. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that too, that too. <laughs> well, how, about, how about this both end? And again, I think I would still be a dualist. I wouldn't even necessarily subscribe to this one, but there is a theory of kind of SETI uh, contact uh, research called the transcension hypothesis, which is that any sufficiently random anywhere else advanced civilization would have gone post-material a while ago, and they would be they, they would be sending energy, information, awareness, whatever, through not tin cans in you know in spaceships, um, and that that's a very sort of overly gross rudimentary sense, which would then be potentially if those guys engage in a transcension hypothesis, if our subconscious or unconscious is actually the entry gate to that information field there's almost a reconciliation between them all um yeah using kind of some post-jungian duct tape the problem with that is that um despite the incredible sensing equipment that we have uh able to measure quantum states uh able to measure single photons we've never been able to measure anything um, outside of the standard model, uh, outside of fermions and um, bosons, and, and so I, I, I think that when it, you say when you say never been able to measure anything, what like like what? Give us some examples. Uh, so so you're, you're saying that um, it's very primitive to send tin cans through space. They're they're doing something that's transmaterial, right? Possibly. I mean that that's a, that's Possibly. a hypothesis. Yeah. Yeah, but the problem is that we've never measured anything transmaterial. Mm. And that's not for lack of trying. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so I think that we can speculate about it philosophically, but I don't think we can say anything scientifically about it. Because oh, no, science this is, this is should... why I was curious to, to, to double tap into the imaginal realm so we could riff in the Jungian archetypal space without constantly having to tether it back or qualify. We can just play full tilt in that space. We're not, we're not saying there's one-to-one -one truth claims. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I know, but I think that gives Jung a bad name. Um, I, I think that people does. think about that and they think, oh, well, people talk about Jung in this imaginal sense because he can't be understood in a scientific sense. And, and part of the reason I wrote the book is because a lot of these ideas in the book are kind of new age woo-woo stuff. And I wanted to show that, that all of this stuff has a very firm grounding in real science. And that it's not woo-woo at all. It, it, it's, it, it's, it's as scientific as neuroscience is. It's as important and it's as influential. Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, that, 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 is, that is such a, a, fun, um, a fun back and forth. So, so I really appreciate you uh, returning serve with such fun pace and position. That, that, that Thank you for level. challenging me at such a difficult level. Um, oh. It wasn't easy, I'll tell you that. Well, I mean, I, I had no idea this is, this, I mean, I knew there was a couple of questions. I definitely wanted to ask you about the hedonic treadmill. I wanted to ask you about Huberman's eye tracking, but kind of beyond, and, and then theory of mind, uh, you know, Jungian versus uh, interoceptive. Um, but beyond that, the rest was just jazz with you. So, so thank you. And, and thank you for, um, 
Yeah, for advocating so heartfeltly. I mean, it almost feels like a sort of a loving uh, recontextualization, rehabilitation of Jung, right? Yeah, for yeah. your broader, you know, colleagues, profession, community in your current role. In my field, it's anybody who's interested in analysis reads Freud and nobody reads Jung and they've got it backwards. We should we should step away from Freud and, and I think Jung has much better ideas. Yeah, I think Freud was a brilliant but torquey cokehead. I mean, let's just call it for what it is. <laughs> you know, where young at least he le he leaned into the misto. You and everything was about sex. Everything and, and everything is not about sex. You know, Jung understood that the human brain is far broader, far more interesting than just being a sex machine. Beautiful. Well, for everybody listening, go go grab a copy of Spellbound and 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 check it all out. This has been a fantastic conversation, Dan. Thank you so much for joining us on Homegrown Humans. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a great pleasure. This podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement, and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.